Hello and welcome to the Insight is Capital podcast. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. My special guests are Lisa Lake Langley and Dr. Dean Smith. And today we're going to tackle the question, given the choice and assuming they are the same, should I buy U.S. domiciled ETFs or should I buy Canadian domiciled ETFs? The answer might just surprise you. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Lisa Lake Langley is the CEO and President of Emerge Canada, Inc. In 2015, she founded Emerge to provide global support to investment managers. Currently the only female majority owner of a fund and ETF company in Canada, Lisa Langley was named CEO of the year in 2021. Dr. Dean Smith, PhD, is a partner with Kadesky and Associates LLP and the president of Kadesky U.S. Tax Limited. Kadesky is a boutique accounting firm which provides only taxation services. Dean has been involved with expatriate tax work for over 23 years, assisting companies moving employees around the world. Clients also include private individuals who have multiple jurisdictional filings, Dean is also an instructor and writer with the Knowledge Bureau. Lisa, Dr. Smith, welcome to the show. It's great to have you both. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Nice to see you, Dean. Thank Likewise. you. So let's get to talking about thinking Canadian and buying Canadian in the realm of financial markets and ETFs. I'll start by making the point that it was Canadians who invented the ETF 31 years ago but ultimately, as with so many Canadian innovations, we are now faced with the question of incipient domination by U.S. domiciled ETFs operating in the Canadian markets. The problem, however, is not that we as Canadians prefer to buy U.S. domiciled ETFs. It seems to be that we have gotten so used to investing in publicly traded U.S. companies, and that, by extension, has made it easy for us to decide to invest in U.S. domiciled ETFs as well. We often don't think about what that means. While we should, as Canadians, be patriotic, there's nothing wrong with that, to buying Canadian to support our own financial industry, it is more relevant for us to consider what's in it for us to buy Canadian. There are tax consequences and estate planning consequences that are far more important considerations that favor the Think Canadian credo, the Buy Canadian mantra. It's really in our best interest to invest in Canadian ETFs Apples to apples, Canadians should be investing in equivalent Canadian domiciled ETFs because of tax treatment, because of local investor considerations, and because of regulation. So Lisa, Dr. Smith, let's jump in. I might make some like just big picture comments first and then definitely turn it over to Dean to, you know, really make this come alive. There are many fabulous Canadian manufacturers of ETFs. And so Canadian listed means it was made in Canada and it's trading on an exchange in Canada. And U.S. listed means it was made in the U.S., it is trading on a U.S. exchange, and it was designed for U.S. residents. And so just inherently in the structure, okay, they're two entirely different things, funds and ETFs made in Canada funds and ETFs made in the U.S. And to Pierre's point, uh, you have this, uh, I call it in, uh, advisor and investor confusion. 
that because it's just like I want to buy shares of, you know, uh, IBM uh, and it trades on a U.S. exchange, I can just, you know, click that uh, symbol in and I can buy that. And the same goes for U.S. listed ETF tickers. Away to the races, we just type that in and we purchased it. What's happening is this unbelievable gap that we have. And I believe that there's uh, a bit of a a regulatory situation of unintended consequences where we don't have required rules about disclosure. And so advisors, un, unaware, sometimes in some cases, portfolio managers, unaware, investors, unaware of all of these unintended consequences, just go ahead and buy a U.S. listed ETF. The next thing you know, they're paying FX conversion just to hold that ETF. When Dean talks, he's going to talk about what happens to you when you hold it. But there's things that are happening to you before you even get to that. Because the lack of disclosure, the, the lack of advanced uh, notice when someone goes in to type in that U.S. listed ETF ticker is really where the problem is taking place. Because surely if advisors knew about this, if every, then some advisors are very sensitive to this, uh, but not all are. And if they were all sensitive to this issue, then they would be disclosing this and discussing this with their clients. If all direct investors were sensitive to this issue, they wouldn't want to pay the FX conversion charge, take their Canadian dollar assets, flip it into U.S. dollars, and buy a U.S. listed ETF. And, you know, for a, you know, certainly with all of the fantastic, you know, roster of ETFs available in Canada, they'd be hard-pressed to have a particular need and not be able to service that through a Canadian manufactured, made in Canada, either mutual fund or ETF. So the issue that we have is that on mutual funds, this never was permissible. There isn't a Canadian resident who can purchase a U.S. mutual fund. But sadly, because U.S. listed ETFs trade on the exchange, they can just type in that ticker and away they go. The chart that I'm showing shows how big this problem is. And this problem is, you know, in some cases only going to, uh, how can I say it, go away or at least become a smaller percentage of our total uh, Canadian ETF assets held is if we educate and really help everyone understand what it is they're doing to themselves when they purchase this. So right now in the Canadian ETF industry, and this is as of the end of June, so I haven't updated this yet. This is Investor Economics, fantastic data. They have 364 billion as of the end of June in 2021. 15.5%, that blue square. So we're talking about $55 billion of assets are in US listed ETFs. Right. Okay, so the issue is this is being happening. Advisors are doing this. And also direct investors are doing this to themselves. And so that really is the problem. And so now you've purchased this. So let's assume you've purchased this. Okay, you're an advisor and you've purchased this U.S. listed ETF for your clients or you're a direct investor and you've done this for yourself and you're not aware. Okay, you just had a ticker that you heard was good and you went ahead and bought it. And now you're an owner of a U.S. listed ETF either in a taxable account or a non-taxable account. And now I'm going to turn it over to Dean so that you can help. Uh, what does that investor do? What, it, what just happened to that investor? 
I, I just want to pick up on one point that you made, Lisa, and I think this is paramount to any advisor uh, when, when helping their clients determine what to buy is, you know, a, a U.S. ETF is a product that is manufactured in the U.S. under U.S. tax law that is aimed primarily at U.S. investors. Whereas a Canadian ETF is a manufactured product under Canadian tax law that's aimed at Canadian investors. So they clearly have different target audiences. And I think what, like you said, what is happening is that the, the investors aren't realizing those differences and they're providing, uh, when a Canadian resident purchases a U.S. ETF, it's really a very tax inefficient uh, vehicle that they're putting them into. And, you know, they're not doing their clients any service whatsoever by doing that. As an advisor, you know, they should be maximizing their clients' returns after taxes, inflation, and fees. Um, so obviously the fee component is, you know, the ETF itself has the MERs and whatever fees the advisors are charging their clients. That's beyond the scope of this discussion. Right now we're sort of in a, an inflationary environment, whether that's temporary or long-term. Again, I'm, I'm not an economist, so I can't really comment on that. So only, the only thing I can really comment is the tax treatment. And again, the Canadian ETF is going to be taxed very differently to a Canadian resident as opposed to the U.S. ETF and, and vice versa. So a U.S. resident is going to have a tax-favored uh, return based on holding a U.S. ETF as opposed to a Canadian ETF. So having said that, perhaps we can go into uh, a bit of the details. So I had some uh, slides I had done. Um, and before we go into some of the you know issues itself, I, I guess the question in my mind too is, you know, what type of ETF you're looking to purchase or advise your clients on purchasing, regardless of whether it's U.S. or Canadian, in terms of what their current needs are. And that is, you know, do your clients need income generating uh, assets because they need that income to live on, etc. Um, the tax impacts for those are, are really what's driving your decision. Or are you looking at a long-term growth strategy where uh, you don't really care about the current year income and as thus the, you know, the fund that you recommend may not have a lot of current year distribution, so these tax issues aren't quite as relevant. But let's assume, however, uh, for this discussion anyway, that the, the current year income is, is paramount to, your, to your, uh, your client. So let's take a look at what these issues are. So we have, first of all, the holding of foreign properties how various distributions are made and, you know, estate planning uh, issues to consider. So in, in general, when we have ETFs, we have, for Canadian purposes, you know, these are flow-through investments and in that the character of the income earned by the ETF flows through to the investor and is taxed in the investor's hands directly. So for a Canadian ETF, we're going to have capital gains that are generated within the ETF by the ETF, by the fund itself buying and selling. We're going to have Canadian source dividends, which in most cases are going to be eligible, meaning it's, it has a lower personal tax rate. We're going to have foreign, potentially foreign source income and foreign taxes paid as well, which will flow through to the investor. We have interest and in other income, and we have a return of capital. So in general, for the Canadian ETF or Canadian mutual fund, we have five types of income that are, that are distributed out. And the Canadian investor would receive a T3 slip to report what type of income they've received for that year from the fund. So let's then look at the distributions from a Canadian ETF to a Canadian resident. 
So again, the capital gains in the Canadian source dividends flow out to the unit holders and they retain their character. Why is that important? Canadian source dividends are taxed at a preferential rate as opposed to ordinary income. I'm based in Ontario, so the, you know, the ordinary income is taxed at a top marginal rate of 53.5%, which is extremely high. If, you, if the taxpayer receives a Canadian eligible dividend, the tax rate is closer to 36 to 37%. And if the taxpayer receives an ineligible dividend, which I don't think the ETF would really have in, this, in most cases because that means they own shares in a Canadian-controlled private corporation, I guess technically possible, but somehow I have my doubts that they would hold uh, many investments in those, the personal tax rate in those is 47%. And capital gains are taxed at one half of the marginal tax rate. So if you're if you're at the top bracket and the ordinary rate is fifty three and a half percent, the effective capital gains rate is twenty seven point six five percent. So those income distributions retain their character and flow out to the Canadian resident investor at those preferential tax rates. Foreign income um, doesn't receive whether it's interest or foreign source dividends, receives no preferential Canadian tax treatment. It's all taxed as foreign source ordinary income taxed at the taxpayer's marginal tax rates. So again, for a Canadian uh, investor resident in Ontario, you could be paying 53.5% tax on the foreign source portion of the ETF's distribution to you in the current year. A return of capital is just that. It's not income. It's a tax-free return of your initial investment. What it does is it reduces your overall investment in the ETF or reduces what's called your adjusted cost base or ACB. Uh, and that's, it becomes relevant in, in the capital gain that you may realize on the disposition of the ETF itself. So the return of capital has no current year impact. It's, it's a positive cash flow that has no tax impact uh, in the f currently, but could have a tax impact in the future by reducing your overall cost in your investment. So again, so these are the Canadian treatments on a Canadian ETF flowing out to a Canadian resident investor. So then, then let's look at the same distribution pattern out of a U.S. ETF, again, for a Canadian resident investor. Now, again, I want to say that you know, a, a U.S. ETF is a manufactured product that's aimed at U.S. resident taxpayers. It is not aimed at Canadian resident taxpayers. So, so to quickly summarize, because I think it all be said in one word, there is no special tax treatment whatsoever in Canada on income earned from a U.S. ETF. It is all treated as ordinary income taxed at the taxpayer's marginal tax rate. So again, if you've got an investor in Ontario, you're looking at a 53.5% effective tax rate on the entire distribution from a U.S. ETF. So there's no flow through of, you know, in, in the U.S. we have what's called qualified and ordinary dividends. So for a U.S. resident, a, a U, um a qualified dividend would be taxed at a 20% maximum federal tax rate as opposed to the 30%, 37% ordinary tax rate. Doesn't apply to Canadians. Uh, we have um, long-term long capital gains 
which again are taxed at this low maximum 20% federal U.S. tax rate. Again, doesn't apply to Canadian investors. We have a, a big one is a return of capital. So if a U.S. ETF has a return of capital, tax-free for U.S. purposes, guess what? 100% taxable in Canada. So the entire distribution is taxed at 53.5%, which is not very tax effective whatsoever compared to the Canadian ETF. So if you're advising your clients to purchase a U.S. ETF, frankly, you're doing them a disservice because you're increasing their overall tax rate on the income distributions they receive from that ETF in the current year. Now, if the goal, of course, is long-term in terms of your capital gains um, treatment, in, ter in terms of you, you don't really care about current year income and you're buying a growth ETF instead, um, though, though the current year tax issues obviously aren't as relevant. But um, th again, that's part of the decision you make as an advisor with your clients as to, to which actual ETF you want to purchase. I think, you know what, Dean, yeah. I, I wanted to say that that before we continue, that the one that that really uh, <clears throat> rang a bell just now was was the return of capital. That uh, you you've you've put your money, you've put your your investment in an ETF listed in the U.S. And in the case where where some ETFs pay enhanced income or have have uh, an enhanced income structure, which includes return of capital as a payment back to the investor, uh, you wouldn't be. It wouldn't be treated for Canadians buying the U.S. listed ETF. It wouldn't be treated as a return of their capital. It would be treated as normal income. That's a, that's a real eye opener right there. A, 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 absolutely. You know, and you think you got to think from a practical point of view. Uh, the CRA, you know, with a Canadian ETF, the CRA can go in if they want and audit the books of the Canadian ETF. And, and they can go through and determine whether the the income distributions are, are, are technically correct or not. You know, again, right. from a practical point of view, they have no way of knowing whatsoever, nor do they have the legal ability to go audit a U.S. ETF that's based out of New York. They just They just can't do it. So from a practical point of view, they basically have said, look, since we can't verify anything, guess what? It's all taxable. End of discussion. Is it fair? Right. No. Is it the way it is? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I mean, not to mention the fact that that other distributions are also fully taxable. Uh, it really, it really renders U.S. listed ETFs, um, you know, inefficient from a tax point of view. Well, again, I, I, again if, if I was a advisor's client, and I was, you know, investing significant dollar amounts. Such you know the, that the after-tax return, uh, you know, was was a serious matter to me. So you know, very wealthy clients investing lots of money, and my advisor put me in the wrong investment. You know, I'd have to consider whether I want to sue my advisor or not. Well, absolutely. I, I think I think every advisor definitely has a fiduciary responsibility. To, to be fully informed on, on all of the tax treatment for all of the securities that they're buying because, well, you said exactly, they're opening themselves up to liability. Yeah, well, and to my mind, it clearly shows they don't understand the investments that they're recommending their clients invest in. How, how can you be a trusted advisor if you fail to understand the economics of the investments you're making or recommending? I, I don't, yeah. don't get it. And, and as, uh, you know, as a fiduciary, you're, you're also... 
you know, you're also in violation of your fiduciary responsibility. I think there really uh, is a regulatory requirement here that's missing, right? Yeah. You know, advisors have not, that is not in any course in Canada. You know, when you get registered, okay, you haven't taken a class that has itemized out U.S. listed ETFs and the implications. And there, it's just all been silent on this particular topic. You know, it's treated it just like, it's in U.S. stock, but it's far more complicated than that. And I yeah. think that, you know, the industry is doing advisors a disservice by not escalating this, by not requiring disclosure at time of purchase. Uh, and I think if any of those safeguards were in place, then, you know, advisors would be more protected, investors would be more protected. And so, you know, a lot of times advisors are trying to accommodate the the wishes of their of their clients, and unfortunately, because there just isn't a tremendous amount of information has been has not been available. You know, a few understand it, but I would say we receive phone calls every week. You know, from advisors about this particular topic. So, you know, I yeah. think there's a lot more the industry can do about this. Why Why do we have this regulatory gap? Is the is the really the big question? I feel like a lot of this stuff just sort of gets glossed over, and 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 if there is a question about it, maybe the mistake that could be be, being made, uh, you know, or taken for granted is is you know this sort of, yeah, 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 it's all the same, um, you know, and 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 frankly, you know, I I was surprised to find out uh, after being in and around the business for for thirty years um, that the tax treatment was, you know something you cannot take for granted. Agreed. Great. Okay, so that's just, I mean, those val valid points. And again, I think advisors really have to become cognizant of what these issues are. So we have, you know, the current year income. Um, that's that, that. Let's next look at what happens when a investor passes away owning these types of assets. So from a Canadian point of view, we have what's called a deemed disposition on death. So basically, any capital property is deemed to, do, to have been disposed of at fair market value on the taxpayer's passing. Um, property left to a surviving spouse, however, is not subject to the deemed disposition rules and can, be, and can be transferred over to the surviving spouse at the decedent's adjusted cost base. So the tax event is deferred until the spouse either passes away or the spouse disposes of those assets via a sale. So from this point of view, um, it really doesn't matter whether you have the Canadian or the U.S. ETF, in that both, both um, investments are going to be deemed to be sold at whatever the current fair market value is, and because they're publicly listed, that's easy to obtain, and you know whatever your adjusted cost base. The only... Uh, issue with the U.S. ETF for Canadian residents then would be the uh, the foreign exchange gain or loss as well, because not only uh, are you going to have a true capital gain or loss based on the nominal U.S. gain or loss in U.S. dollars, but you're going to have a foreign exchange gain or loss uh, in Canada as well, because for Canadian tax purposes, everything has to be reported in Canadian dollars. So again, from from aside from the foreign exchange risk, it, it, for Canadian tax purposes, uh, the deemed disposition on death is probably not really an issue. However, on the U.S. side, in the U.S. side, we have this wonderful uh, additional U.S. 
tax system known as the U.S. transfer tax. So the U.S. has an income tax system and a transfer tax system. Now, the transfer tax system encompasses the U.S. estate tax, which probably most of you have heard of, the U.S. gift tax, and the U.S. generation skipping transfer tax, or GSTT. The gift tax and the GSTT were implemented not to raise revenue, but to provide a backstop for the U.S. estate tax. For example, let's assume somebody's on their deathbed and rather pay the estate tax. They say, well, I'm going to give everything away right now. So when they pass away, they had no assets, no estate, so they wouldn't be subject to any U.S. estate tax. Well, it took U.S. Congress a, a few years, about 30, to figure that out. Um, so they brought in the gift tax. So gifts were made within a certain timeline of death would be brought back into the decedent's taxable estate. Again, it, it's just, like, you know, that again, the gift tax and the GSTT are not there to raise revenue. They're just to, to strengthen the estate tax. So as a Canadian investor, if you buy a U.S. ETF, that is considered a U.S. CITUS asset. As a non-citizen, non-resident of the United States, a taxpayer is subject to U.S. estate tax on U.S. CITUS assets. So your investment in a U.S. ETF would be a U.S. CITUS asset, excuse me, would be, and that in determining your any U.S. estate tax exposure, you would add those assets to, excuse me, any other U.S. CITUS assets that you may have, such as U.S. stock owned directly, IBM, McDonald's, uh, Boeing, etc., U.S. companies, any U.S. real property, your, your Florida vacation home. So you would look at to see what your total U.S. CITUS assets. And the U.S. estate tax is not based on capital gains like the Canadian deemed disposition on death. It's based on the fair market value of those assets. Now, under the Canada-U.S. tax treaty, a Canadian who is a non-resident, non-U.S. citizen can avail themselves of the current uh, U.S. Unified Credit Estate Tax Exemption. So for 2021, that exemption is $11,700,000 U.S. dollars, and is indexed to increase in 2022 to $12,060,000 U.S. dollars. So for the vast majority of investors, they may not actually be subject to U.S. estate tax. That relief, however, is provided under Article 29B of the Canada-U.S. Tax Convention. If the investor owns more than $60,000 of U.S. CITUS assets, then they are required to file a U.S. estate tax return, or rather their estate is required to file a U.S. estate tax return. And it's been my experience that, that a lot of Canadian financial institutions will not release those assets until they receive an IRS closing letter, meaning that the U.S. estate tax issues have been dealt with with the IRS. So the point I want to make here is if your client is extremely wealthy, such that they're over the current thresholds, they could actually have a U.S. estate tax exposure. And even if your client is under the, those current year thresholds, they could have a filing obligation um, with the IRS and they would need to get a, an IRS closing letter that they can provide to the Canadian financial institution so the Canadian financial institution will release those assets so they can be distributed to the beneficiaries of the estate or the will. 
The other point I want to make in terms of the U.S. estate tax is it is extremely political. The Republicans, for years going back to uh, the second President Bush, have been trying to have the estate tax repealed because they believe it's double taxation. That is that the, the taxpayers earn the money to buy the asset, and they right. pay the income tax when they earn the money. And they're saying, well, why should we be paying the second layer of tax on the fact that we own an asset? So they've always tried to uh, minimize the, uh, the amount of U.S. estate tax that taxpayers pay. Uh, you know, They don't have the votes to get it repealed. Uh, the Democrats look at any repeal as a tax break for the wealthy, so they're, they're against it. Uh, and the Republicans, if you go back to 2000, when uh, the first uh, George Bush II got elected, um, the exemption amount was you know 600,000, then it went up to a million, then it was indexed up to three and a half million as of 2009. It went away 2010. Then President uh, Obama had it reinstated in part of his discussion uh, his discussions with the uh, the Republicans at that time. Uh, then it was uh, five million dollars, and it was which is indexed for inflation. Then, when President Trump got elected and got the 2017 Trump tax reform bill through, it was almost doubled to the uh, you know 11 million dollars. And because the 2017 tax reform bill wasn't revenue neutral, there's sunset provisions in there, known as the Byrd amendments, which means as of January 1st, 2026, it's going to revert back to the five million dollars. A threshold as adjusted for inflation. Now, President Biden, in uh, before he was elected in his, in his proposals, had talked about reducing the the amount from the five million dollars, or as it's eleven point seven million dollars now, but down to three and a half million, and increasing the top estate rate from forty to forty five percent. But of course, the president doesn't make tax legislation that comes out of the the House Ways and Means Committee, which is controlled <clears throat> by the Democrats right now. So they had proposed uh, dropping it from that $11.7 million down to the $5 million again as indexed for inflation and keeping the rates the same. Unfortunately, because of those two senators in West Virginia and Arizona who, who said they're not going to support any tax increases, all those proposals were dropped in the Build Back Better Act, which has been passed by the House, and who knows if it's going to be passed by the Senate at this point. So what that means is that there's absolutely no changes right now to the U.S. estate tax rules. So we have the $11 million exemption going to 12.06, effective January 1st, 2022, and the top marginal rate is going to stay at 40%. Um, when you're looking at the U.S. estate tax, though, you can't look at the U.S. estate tax in isolation. You've got to look at what your the taxpayer's global tax liability is. And that is because we need to consider the U.S. estate tax versus the Canadian deemed disposition on death tax. If, if the stock hasn't gone or if the ETF hasn't gone up in value such that there is no uh, Canadian capital gain, then the U.S. estate tax really represents a double taxation because there's no offset on the Canadian side. If the Canadian ETF or the, or the U.S. ETF has gone up uh, sufficiently to create a capital gain on the decedent's Canadian tax return, such that there's a tax liability arising on the deemed disposition on death, you can claim a foreign tax credit for any U.S. estate taxes paid on U.S. CITES assets. So this would only be relevant for a U.S. ETF. Again, for a Canadian ETF, 
uh, there's not going to be any U.S. estate tax because it is not a Canadian, or pardon me, it's not a U.S. CITUS asset. It is a Canadian CITUS asset. So you'd only be subject to the Canadian deemed disposition on death rules. There would be no U.S. estate tax exposure, no uh, filing of a U.S. Uh, estate tax return with the IRS, etc. The other thing we have to look at is not just Canada, but all the all governments are concerned whenever investors invest in assets outside of Canada. They want to know about it. So in Canada, we have this foreign reporting form, which is known as a T1135. So if a Canadian resident has investment assets, uh, foreign investment assets with a, a Canadian adjusted cost base in excess of $100,000, that's not per asset, that's cumulative, at any time in the year, they are required to file this T1135 along with their tax return. So whether it's a personal tax return, whether it's a corporate tax return, a trust tax return, partnership, etc. So it looks at who the taxpayer is holding these investment assets. So that's just a uh, another compliance burden. The, the difference is if you have a Canadian ETF, first of all, that's not foreign, so there's no requirement to report it on the T1135. But if you have a U.S. ETF, that has to be reported on Form 11, uh, the T1135. The other issue is is whether you're, you're purchasing through a Canadian uh, broker or not, because most Canadian financial institutions, the Canadian banks or the the brokerage houses, will provide a summary of your T1135 investments that you could then use as part of your, to prepare your, your T1135 when you file it. If you as a direct investor own these U.S. ETFs directly, there is no summary and you have to report each U.S. ETF separately on form T1135. So it just potentially increases your compliance burden quite a bit. I mean, I, I tell, you know, I, I deal with a number of clients, uh, let's say U.S. taxpayers who move up to Canada and become Canadian residents, and they've dealt with U.S. brokers for a year. And I say, look, I, I don't care what your relationship is with your U.S. broker. It's, it, it is better for you to transfer those assets, even in kind, to a Canadian brokerage house that's licensed to deal well, at that point, you're going to be a Canadian resident, so the licensing isn't an issue. Primarily because they're going to make your T1135 filings much, much easier. You know, we've got some clients who, for whatever reason, love their U.S. advisors, keep them. And it's not unusual to, you know, we charge ten to $15,000 just to complete the T1135 because of the volume of U.S. transactions and the volume of direct U.S. securities held. It's just, to me, it's nuts. but. If that's what the the client yeah. wants to do, and they're fully informed, that that's their choice. But uh, you know, I've just seen situations where it makes zero sense. So again, from a Canadian versus U.S. ETF, from a Canadian point of view, it's a a Canadian domestic product, Canadian domestic investment. It's not foreign, and it has no Form T eleven thirty five filing implications. Whereas your purchase of a U.S. ETF clearly has to be reported on T eleven thirty five, assuming you meet the hundred thousand dollar threshold at any time in the year. As an advisor, again, your goal is to help your clients maximize their returns after taxes, inflation, and fees. Again, the, the fee structure beyond this discussion, we have no control over inflation, but that may be uh, part of your decision as to which ETF you buy. But once you've made a decision as to which type of ETF you want to purchase, you know the decision then is whether to buy a Canadian or U.S. ETF. Uh, clearly, from an uh, after-tax point of view, you are much 
further ahead by buying a Canadian ETF because it's a Canadian product designed to be owned by Canadian resident investors. I can't be any more direct than that. Buying a advising your client by a U.S. ETF is extremely tax inefficient, and you're doing your client a disservice. And I said, if the volume of the dollars is large enough, your client may will go back and sue you for breach of your fiduciary duty. You're going to have so, Dean. Yeah. Uh, just one, uh, I guess, one sort of an ancillary question. Going back to the uh, next to before, next to the last slide about estate. What happens when when uh, Canadian when a Canadian investor has a substantial holding in U.S. ETFs in their RSP, and there's this filing requirement in the U.S.? What happens then? Well, a, 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 for a Canadian RRSP and a RIF, and 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 you look at any of the the tax deferred, so a Canadian registered education savings plan, a Canadian tax free savings account. For U.S. tax purposes, excuse me, these are all considered to be what's called foreign grantor trusts because, you know, the individual has the ability to take funds out of the trust. They could, you know, some of them are revocable, et cetera. Um, the, the problem is because it's a foreign grantor trust, and never mind foreign, because it's a grantor trust, the settlor, contributor, or grantor, whatever term you want to use, is deemed to own the underlying trust assets. So those U.S. CITUS ETFs owned in a Canadian RRSP are still U.S. CITUS assets, and because the decedent is deemed to own those assets, the decedent will still have a U.S. estate tax filing obligation and possibly U.S. estate tax. Again, because the IRS will look right through the RRSP to the underlying assets. So putting them in your RSP doesn't eliminate the estate tax. If you were to hold U.S. investments in yeah. a Canadian corporation or a properly structured Canadian trust, that would eliminate the U.S. estate tax because the corporation or trust doesn't die. And and we use those we use um, you know Canadian trusts quite often. Proper, they have to be properly structured trusts uh, to own uh, U.S. real estate quite often if the individual is quite wealthy. I think I think it's just always been taken for granted that the RSP, the RRSP structure, was ironclad. And no, nope. even though we're allowed to own to own foreign assets in the RSP up to the percentage, the allowances. You know, having been an advisor, it was something that I probably would have taken for granted. But now, with the introduction of of ETFs as a particular type of corporation, uh, as an insight as asset makes it far more complicated than than probably yeah, most, I mean, most investors and advisors imagine. Absolutely. What, what, what I do, uh, if I'm dealing with a tax situation for a decedent, I will work with their advisors to get a detailed listing you know, and, and, and their executor of everything they owned as of the date of death. And if they own it in, in a trust, I will ask for a detailed listing of everything owned within the trust. Um, so basically, I'm doing a net worth statement as of death. And and I will go through and identify asset by asset, which is Canadian and which is U.S., and then I will determine whether you know their net worth is over the threshold, and whether I have a U.S. actual um, estate tax liability because they have U.S. CITES assets. So the RSP does not provide any shelter whatsoever against U.S. estate tax. Never has. Yeah. 
And in your experience, Dean, how often does this problem arise? How common well, is it well, for this problem well, to arise? Well, I think it, it, it goes back to the financial institutions. And as the IRS has cracked down on um, foreign owners of U.S. investments, you know, the, the U.S. is concerned that foreigners aren't paying their pair, fair share of U.S. income tax and U.S. investments. And, you know, and not only that, but U.S. residents who live abroad, or, you know, the, the U.S. Congress assumes they're all tax cheats, and they've, they've put a lot of compliance issues in place to sort of go after these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what U.S. person moved to Canada, though, as a tax haven. That's beyond me. But U.S. Congress doesn't seem to get that. Um, so, again, it's becoming more relevant now because the Canadian financial institutions aren't willing to release those assets to the beneficiaries until they get that U.S. estate tax closing letter, which means you've got to file a U.S. estate tax return. Even if you're, or again, under U.S. domestic law, you don't have to file a U.S. estate tax return if your U.S. citus assets are not in excess of U.S. $60,000. Well, your, your, your cheapest right. Florida condo is going to take you over that $60,000 threshold. Um, so even if you don't have to pay any U.S. estate tax because you're under the $11.7 million U.S. threshold right now, uh, you do have a filing obligation. You've got to file the U.S. estate tax return, then request the IRS closing letter, which they now charge for, I think it's 200 or 250 U.S. dollars, and provide that to the financial institution, at which point they will then release the assets to the beneficiaries. So it's becoming more and more relevant because the IRS is cracking down right. on foreigners not doing stuff right from a U.S. tax perspective. At the very minimum, this this consideration of U.S. listed ETFs in uh, Canadian investor accounts adds a layer. Uh, this 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 multiple, at least one, if not many, layers of U.S. Um, you know IRS well, requ- th- you know required well, th- filings. <laughs> Again, three golden nuggets. One, Not to mention the tax consequences well, let's, itself, let's, the cost. So let's, let's summarize this, what yeah. the three golden nuggets are. One, it's tax inefficient to hold a U.S. ETF as compared to a Canadian ETF for Canadian residents. Two, you're opening yourself up to U.S. estate, uh, possible U.S. estate taxes or at least U.S. estate tax filing obligations by holding a U.S. ETF, whether in a registered or non-registered plan. Three, if you're holding U.S. ETFs, uh, you're going to be subject to the Form T1135 reporting requirements. All those things go away if you have a Canadian ETF instead. So if, if the after-tax return or the, the pre-tax returns are equal, what are you getting by buying a U.S. ETF? A lot of headaches. A lot of additional costs, a lot of additional compliance burdens, <laughs> a lot of additional risk because, some t- you know, because a lot of these forms aren't going to be completed correct or not filed at all, then you could be subject to late filing penalties, interest charges. It, to me, it makes no sense. Why do you want to run that risk if you get the same pre-tax return by buying the Canadian ETF instead? Absolutely. Completely agree. Wow. That's a lot to think. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's a lot that's been taken for granted, and it's certainly a lot to uh, have to reconsider. Is, the, the consequences... I mean, I, I think at the very minimum, you know, advisors would look at, okay, well, you know, what's the, what does that mean for my after-tax returns? What does that mean for, for my after-tax, you know, income uh, on, on portfolios that hold these assets? 
Uh, but it's not just that. That's just that's just the early considerations. The 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 long running considerations, the long running impact is 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 the way that it could potentially tie up your clients' estates. Oh yeah, absolutely. At the other end. And believe me, that, that, believe me right yeah. now, the IRS is not time efficient whatsoever. I've got clients two years later still trying to get their 2019 refund. They they are so far behind. The the taxpayer advocate reported at one time, I think it was 12 million pieces of unopened mail sitting on IRS's desks. And they don't have the staff <laughs> to go through it. It's taking forever yeah. to get anything done. And and And... What again? This makes no. But they do. They do reserve the right. They do reserve the right to take their time. That's for sure. Well, there's nothing you can do about it. So you know, yeah, if you're, a, yeah. you know, if you're a, a U.S. citizen, for example, living in the states, you can call your congressman. And, and then taxpayer advocate, which is the formal IRS complaints department, is also about 12 months behind. But if you were a U.S. person living in the U.S. and you had a really big issue, you could call your congressman or your senator and get them involved. Well, guess what? As a Canadian, you don't have a U.S. senator. You don't have a U.S. congressman, yeah. so who are you going to call? Nobody. We've tried many different routes to see if we can accelerate things, and you know we've even we've even talked to the Washington National Tax Departments of some of the big four firms, and guess what? They can't do anything either. It's it's you could be like I said you could be you tying no up your, you have no status right, and yeah. the IRS will get to it when they get to it, and and some things that drives me nuts too is is instead of the IRS agent taking hold of a file. And dealing with it, let's say there's one piece of information missing. Instead of calling you and dealing with it, they'll send you a letter, make you respond in writing. But instead of that response mm -hmm. going to the top of their pile, guess what? goes to the bottom of their pile, which you've got to wait another nine months for them to even get to it. So it just drags out on and on and on, and there is absolutely nothing you can do to expedite it. So, yeah, you could be tying up your client's estate for who knows how long. Wow. Um, well, Lisa, any any parting thoughts? My number one cause uh, we've created with uh, the Knowledge Bureau and, and Dean's, you know, expert uh, support, uh, PowerPoint presentations, tax fact sheets, all of these are listed on the EmergeCM.ca website. Uh, right. So PDF versions, electronic versions, and advisors can share these with their clients as well. You know, Emerge really provides support to uh, advisors, professional advisors, and we advocate for that. So we think it's very important that they also, in turn, help educate their clients. Uh, so we're more than willing to do webinars with them and support them through this process. Uh, and we are actively reaching out to regulators, uh, really, for disclosure. I think one of the worst things, you know, we certainly do have advisors, uh, some of whom are sensitive to this issue, and that's very thankful. Otherwise, we'd have a lot more U.S.-listed ETFs being purchased. However, because we still have quite a chunk, you know, about $55 billion plus, okay, and it's not, you know, and it's growing, all right, uh, we don't have broad enough uh, disclosure and direct investor education in Canada. And so Canadians are taking their retirements and buying U.S.-listed ETFs, and they're just not aware. Uh, not aware of that it just converted, they just paid FX, you know, and then all of the tax things that Dean just spoke about. So I think with a combined front, we can help educate the industry about really this thing, which is unintended consequences. You know, the flexibility that regulators provided was so that advisors could act in the best interest of their clients. 
they didn't want to take it away in case there was something that you know was so phenomenal it was available in the us it wasn't available in canada and the potential for that investment to add value to that client's portfolio far exceeded any of these tax consequences that happened to every canadian resident but you know the chances of that are so de minimis that i really don't think it's there and that basically we're in the land of unintended consequences so i i do hope that our continuous reach out to regulators will uh, hopefully bring about just some more disclosure requirements, some more acknowledgement requirements, and just kind of like, stop, you can still buy it if you want, but please be aware of the following, right? Uh, Because, you know, all Canadian ETF manufacturers in Canada, and certainly Emerge uh, Canada is, is one of those, you know, we do a lot to, you know, be good members in good standing and Uh, just like all the other fine, wonderful ETF manufacturers here in this country. And we work really hard uh, to meet all the requirements to, you know, be there uh, for Canadian residents. And, you know, it is a bit a frustrating issue that, you know, U.S. firms are selling to direct investors and advisors here in Canada and not having to meet any of those requirements. So uh, that is a, a, you know, ongoing frustration, but it doesn't, our frustration doesn't hit people in the pocketbook what hits people in the pocketbook are all these negative tax consequences. Uh, and so I hope that we can raise the flag enough that we make people aware. Well, Lisa, kudos to you. I think, I think uh, you know, this is a great cause uh, that you've taken up. And um, I, I, you know, the first I heard of it was from you. And uh, so I want to thank you for bringing us on board in this fight. And, um, well, thank you. I think, I think it's, you know, it's definitely a worthwhile cause for, for us to advocate to advisors and also to investors, um, at large. And, um, Dr. Smith, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your incredibly valuable insight on this, on this uh, matter of taxation and ETFs. Um, I, I hope that, that it has the intended in- impact that we're hoping for it to have, uh, given the unintended consequences of, of this sort of uh, free trade border that we have or that we share with the U.S., um, that, that advisors and investors alike uh, learn from what you've shared with us today. So thank you both very much. You're welcome. And um, thank you. looking forward to sharing this. Thank you. All right. Thank thanks. you, Pierre. You know, if any of your clients you. have no, any, don't... any advisors or have any particular questions, uh, you know, I'm happy to, to talk to them. Perfect.